Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Joshua 2 and Hebrews 11. We start here, Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flasks that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the forts, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard of it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And now from Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I could listen to Eric read all day. Thank you for that. All right. Well, um, why is this story in the Bible? You, you can read this story and think, it, there's a lot of stories like this in Scripture where you might look at it and think, okay, is this just a, an anecdote? Is this just a compendium of different things that happened in the Near East around that time? Or is there some connection that's happening here that makes the story important for us to understand. And that's what we're going to get into today. We're going to unpack this a little bit. So you, we just read the story, two spies from Israel, they come, they're scoping out Jericho because Israel is about to enter the promised land. 
and they seek cover in Rahab's house, who is a prostitute who lives in the city walls. If you've, any of you ever been to the Holy Land, been to Israel? I know, there's, I know you guys have. There's a few of you that have been there. Um, so these old walled cities, uh, part of the way that they worked is it wasn't one wall. It was usually two walls. Um, so that if you, you know, wanted to sneak attack the city and knock the wall over, to your great dismay, you would be greeted with just another wall. Um, and, uh, but these walls would have, like, people would live in the, in, they'd build rooms in them, and people would live inside the walls. And so Rahab lived there uh, in, inside one of those, those rooms in the wall. And um, the king of Jericho heard that the spies were there. He sent soldiers to look for them. Uh, but Rahab believed that these spies were sent from God, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. So she hid them, uh, and she told the soldiers that the spies had come. She didn't really know who they were. They left. If you go that way, you might catch up to them. They take off, and then she goes up, and she gives the spies the all clear, and she says, you guys go that way, uh, and she lowers then a rope from her window uh, that the men climbed down, and then God rewarded her when she said, please, when you, in, when you invade, because uh, she knew that was coming, uh, spare my family. So... We read this story, and it's this encounter with spies, but there's this, um, the elephant in the room in the story for Rahab is that she's a prostitute, is that she's, she's not just any ordinary woman living in Jericho, but she's a prostitute living in Jericho. And as the story unfolds, a picture of her begins to develop who this woman is. And uh, her, the portrait of Rahab, like the portrait of you, is a complex tapestry of tragedy and triumph, right, Uh, of things that are unfolding in this place between uh, what has been and what will be. Uh, And and so I want to ask the question, and I've asked this before, but if you were to paint your own self-portrait, what are the things that you would include in that self-portrait? The things that you would say, I definitely want this to be in the image. What are the things that you would leave out, that you would withhold from the image? Let's talk about Vincent Van Gogh a little bit. We have a, a, a picture here. Uh, this picture is called, it has a number of names uh, because he's, he was French. And so in the translation, Cyprus at night is what we'll call it here. And when you look at this, I wish we could see it a little bit closer, but in that carriage uh, in the background, there's a man and a woman. And if you get up close and you look at it, their, their faces are basically featureless, except that the man has red hair and a red beard. Anybody want to venture a guess as to who that might be? It's Vincent, right? He painted himself into this scene. Now, when you look at this scene, what kind of feelings does it conjure for you? I look at it, and it's, it's, it's romance in the south of France, right? It's a beautiful night. It's a carriage ride. It's a man and a woman cozied up together as they're riding down uh, this lane by the cypress. It's a beautiful picture. Vincent wrote about as much as he painted. Uh, He wrote over 800 letters, most of which still exist, uh, most of which were written to his brother Theo. There's a website called Vincent Van Gogh Letters uh, where they're all there, uh, translated from French into English. Um, If you're into that kind of thing, there's a lot to be gleaned. It's a very searchable website. Anyway, I'm not here to do a commercial for a website. But his letters are there, and they're of note. And one of the things that we know from the writing that Vincent did about his own life is that this scene did not happen to him. He didn't have an idyllic romance in the south of France. He was terrible at relationships. He was a deeply troubled man, chronically bad 
at maintaining relationships and then really combative when people even talked about it. That was Vincent. And so he paints this portrait. It's kind of a self-portrait, but it's not a true one, but it's an idealized self-portrait. And we've been given tools like social media where we can do the same thing, right? We can create versions of our narrative that present us as idealized, that present us as everything is really, really great. Some of us do that. Some of us, that's, that's kind of what we want the world to see. So there's another side to that coin, though. Uh, Vincent was an early starving artist, right? He, he kind of paved the way for the starving artists of today. And as often as he might have imagined himself in love, he also imagined himself in the pit of his own misery, in his own despair. Here's another canvas that shows him as, uh, this is called Prisoners Exercising in a Prison Yard. It's a bit on the nose, right, for for the title of a painting. Um, But if you look at it, there's one figure in the very front who's looking at the viewer. Uh, If you're looking at a painting and one of the people in the painting is looking at the viewer, the odds are really good that it's actually the artist who has painted himself into the painting. It's a way that they break the fourth wall uh, to acknowledge the viewer. But that's clearly Vincent. It's a prison Vincent. Uh, He's shorn. He doesn't have his beard anymore. He's gaunt. But that's him. Here's the thing about this painting. Just as Vincent didn't have the idyllic, romantic success uh, that he depicted in the south of France, neither did he spend any time in prison. So this painting is also not exactly the case. He had no romantic rendezvous Neither did he spend time in jail. In both of these paintings, he's telling partial truths. And we do that, right? Some of us really work hard at convincing others through this presentation of ourselves that everything is fine. Everything is going great. Others of us, though, work really hard at presenting the opposite image. And that's the image of, I want you to see my misery. I want you to see how miserable I am. That we almost take a kind of comfort in making sure that what we're showing people is how sad we are and how broken we are and how, how hard life can be. It's like, it's like when you have a bruise and you push on it because the, you kind of like the pain. You know that feeling? Which one are you? Which one do you lean toward? Do you lean toward the presentation of yourself where everything is fine and nothing's wrong? Or do you also lean, because it's, it's just the opposite kind of vanity, to present an image to yourself of the watching world where you're continually beat down and depressed and you're, I'm just basically a prisoner in a prison yard walking in a circle endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. The truth of who you are is not so simple. And it can't be captured in just a still frame. And the reason is because we're dynamic people. And what I mean by that is we change over time. Transformation happens. And it's hard to overstate the absolute transformation and redirection of Rahab's life that came from meeting these two people. When we think of Rahab in scripture, 
we think of her primarily, most people will think of her primarily as Rahab the prostitute from Jericho, as if it's that snapshot. But her life changes when she meets these people. Not just like she's inspired by new ideas. Her life changes. And that's how the gospel works in us. That meeting literally took her from citizenship in one kingdom to citizenship in another kingdom. That's what happened. And for Rahab, she was left in a place where she had to continue then to live in faith. In faith that she would be delivered. And her reasons for helping those spies are reasons that ran deep. Who was Rahab? What did she know? Uh, I want to unpack those two kind of questions here as we get into this story. Uh, Rahab's story, when I read this this week, I thought, you know what we've we've had a lot of lately? Sad stories. A lot of the texts that we've read and things that we've unpacked together here on Sunday mornings have been sad stories about living in the brokenness of this world. And this is another one of those stories. It's a sad story. You know, it's almost as if Scripture takes human suffering seriously, right? Rahab, she lived alone. No husband or children are ever mentioned about her, but what we do learn from Joshua 2 is that she had parents who were alive, she had siblings who were alive, and guess where they all lived? Jericho. So she lived in a city that was small enough. I've seen Jericho. I've actually been to Jericho. Jericho is a city where, when, you know, when they, when they eventually walked around it seven times playing their music and, and you know, what happened? Uh, I won't spoil it for you. Um, it's like, how long would it take to walk around that city seven times? You'd be done before lunch. Like, it's not that big of a city. So here's Rahab living in a city that's, you know, about the size of this office complex we're in here with all the four buildings that line up. And in that city also lives her parents, her mom and her dad. And she has siblings who also live there. So she has this family, but she lives apart from them and she lives alone. Why? Well, the short answer is because most everyone that she takes into her home contributes to the deterioration of another home. And it's her profession. It's what she does. And her brokenness isn't just a thing that she does, but it's a way that she lives. But it speaks not only to her condition, but it speaks to the condition of the city that she's a part of. A city that sustains the profession of a woman like her. Why do you think she lived this way? What happened in her life that put her in this place? Because it, she's not alone. Like, she has family. So something, something happened that put her in a place where this was what she became. Why did she end up doing this? Well, that, that poses the question to us. Why do you do the things that you do? G.K. Chesterton famously said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Right? We pursue things. We pursue destructive vices because there's a hunger in us. There's a hunger in us for something that we desperately want to be satisfied and we can't seem to satisfy it. To that, C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. When the spies come to Rahab, 
they find a woman with a sad, unsatisfied past. And in fact, that may be the reason why they went to Rahab. Because, see, a big part of spying uh, involves moving in ways that encourage people to not want to see you. And so if you can dress and act like a social outcast, people will ignore your existence, and that will make your spying work that much easier, right? Many people wouldn't see them hiding at Rahab's house because they wouldn't go by Rahab's house. And if people did see them hiding at Rahab's house, they would be reluctant to admit that they were there. And so for the spies, it's handy. But for Rahab, it's just home. It's just how it is for her every day of her life. So do you see that portrait of her developing? Rahab was also a person who paid attention. She paid attention to what was happening in her city. She paid attention to what was happening. When the spies arrived, Rahab knew who they were. What did she know? She knew who these spies were. She wasn't confused about who they were. She knew them. Why? Well, let's It's the stuff of legend. It's the stuff of awesome stories. This is a great story in the Bible. Um, And and here's why. Let's try to figure out Rahab's age real quickly, okay? So she has living parents. She's an active prostitute. Let's just say those two details together would put her under the age of 50, right? That her parents are still alive and that she's a prostitute in the city of Jericho. Why is that significant? Well, how long have the people of Israel been wandering in the desert? For 40 years, right? So they've been wandering for 40 years. What happened at the beginning of that 40 years of wandering? They went out of Egypt, right? And the text tells us that the people of Jericho, they know the story. They heard what happened. They heard what happened to Pharaoh's army. They knew that... Somewhere down there in the southern desert was this mighty nation, hundreds of thousands of people strong, who, story goes, had passed through the Red Sea on dry land, and when Egypt tried to follow it, closed in on them and swallowed them up. And then they went where? They went to the, uh, was it the Ammonites or the Amorites? It was one of the two. Hang on, I'm going to find it here. The Amorites wiped them out. The kings of Sihon and Og wiped out. Word is spreading. What is the word that is spreading to Jericho? Those people who seem to have this miraculous power to part the sea and destroy everybody that they come into contact with, they're on their way here. Rahab grew up with these stories. Rahab grew up. And this is how the imagination works, right? This is how fear works, is they knew that somewhere south of them, there was this inevitability that was coming. It's, you know, it's like the movie Jaws. One of the reasons the movie Jaws was so effective was that you don't see the shark for the first hour. Right, that's how the imagination works. For children, it's not, seeing in the, it's not seeing the monster in the closet that makes the monster real. Right, it's because you haven't seen him that you're so convinced that the monster is there. Israel had been lurking just beyond their line of sight, and Jericho is scared 
terrified. Their hearts melt away at the very thought of it, Rahab tells these spies. When, when people in this town think about you, they tremble in fear because you are an inevitability, inevitability of their demise. And so that's what Rahab tells them. She says, you've been lurking just beyond this line of sight and you've filled our imaginations and our minds with terror and we're scared of you. Thanks to Rahab, Israel now knows this. And if we keep reading, what happens to Rahab? We learn that Israel did exactly what they thought, that they invaded Jericho and Jericho fell, right? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. That's what happened. God led the 12 tribes to the land of their inheritance, and Rahab and her family were spared just as the spies promised them. Now, is that the end of this story? Is that it? Is the moral of the story was Rahab asks God to deal kindly with her, and the kindness looks like God sparing their family from demise? No, it goes on, and it goes on in kind of a spectacular way. See, there are three references to Rahab in the New Testament. She comes up three times. In James chapter 2, verse 25, Hebrews eleven thirty-one, which Eric read for us. And these both tell us that Rahab was spared because she believed God and because she showed uh, the spies hospitality and welcome. See, when she aided those spies, her citizenship changed. This is where the gospel starts to shine in this story. She went all in on becoming part of the people of God, which meant leaving behind everything that she had known. When the spies left, Rahab had to live in an ongoing faith that she would one day be delivered. And so she went from being a citizen of Jericho to an alien in her own hometown, and only she knew it. But her heart was set on what? Her heart was set on a coming kingdom. And when that king kingdom came, it would become her new home because she was already a citizen there. What an image of the Christian life this is. Christians live in a world that is riddled with brokenness and pain, the kind of brokenness and pain that creates lives like the one Rahab had been living. And we believe that somewhere across the desolation and the barrenness of all that brokenness is this coming kingdom. And this kingdom, when it comes, it will prevail. And there's nothing that can stop it. And we've been given a promise by the one who will usher in that coming kingdom that our citizenship lies with the one who will usher in that coming kingdom. And so we need not fear. But if we stop there, we still haven't gone far enough because we haven't developed Rahab's picture fully enough. See, back in the days of Moses, when each of the 12 tribes, each of the 12 tribes of Israel had what you might call um, functional princes. They had, they had one leader designated per tribe. And in Numbers chapter 7, it recounts Moses asking these 12 princes to bring offerings on behalf of their tribe. And in that account, we learn the names of who these princes are. And one of them was a man named Nashon, who was identified as the prince of Judah. 
And after invading Jericho, Nashon had a son named Salmon who fell in love with Rahab and married her. So the prince of Judah's son married Rahab. That's pretty good. That's how Jericho's harlot became Judah's princess. But that's also not the end of the story, as I just drag us along. Because Matthew 1.5 tells us that Salmon and Rahab, they had a son. You know who that son was? It was a guy named Boaz. Have you ever heard of Boaz? See, Boaz met a woman named what class? Ruth. That's right. Boaz married Ruth. Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed. Obed, had a, you, you all have the song in your head now. Um, Obed had a son named Jesse. Jesse had several sons, the youngest of whom was a ruddy young man who kept sheep out in the wilderness named David. So Rahab wasn't just the princess of Judah here. She was King David's great-great-grandmother. And even better than that, she's directly in the line of Christ. Because Matthew 1 is, after all, a genealogy. It's, it's glorious. It wasn't just true enough to call Rahab the harlot of Jericho, even though that's what she was for a time. It wasn't true to deny that she had been this either. But the beauty of her story lies in who she had been and then who she became because of her citizenship in this other kingdom. And that's really the heart of the gospel. It's what we celebrate at Christmas is this coming kingdom where our citizenship changes. And so I return to the question of the paintings, the Van Gogh paintings. Are you, are you, are you still painting carriages in the south of France because you, you desperately need people to think that you're, you're, you're worth something, that you're loved, that you're lovable? Or are you still saying, the best thing that you can know about me is how miserable I am, and so that's all I'm going to show you ever. The gospel liberates you from the vineyards in the south of France and from the prison yards. It liberates you from both to tell the truth. There's another Van Gogh I want to show you. Later in his life, I have this one hanging, or not the original, but I have a reproduction of this hanging in my office over there. That's exactly what I would tell you if it was the original, isn't it? Just to throw you off the scent. It's not real, guys. Don't worry about it. But he painted this later in his life. It's, it's hard to understand all that went into it, but, you, you know, most people, if they know anything about Van Gogh, they know two things. They know Starry Night, and they know he cut off his ear. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate, because he hated Starry Night, uh, and this was the most shameful thing that ever happened in his life. And so, he, bum, bum deal for him. Um, but we're going to fix that now, right? Because, because he descended into this dark season during which he cut off his ear in a fit of mental instability and his recovery landed him in an asylum. That was at a time when there was no such thing really as mental health. Uh, and so if you had mental illness of any kind, or even if you had epilepsy and you were prone to seizures, uh, you would be put in an asylum. Do you have chronic depression? They would call it madness. Do you have bipolar disorder? They would call it madness. Do you have schizophrenia? Madness. Do you have epilepsy? Madness. Do you cut off your ear and give it to a prostitute who lives next door? Madness. And then you go and you live in the asylum, and it's kind of this place where they're all sort of rounded up, and they're put in here, and it's this shameful thing to end up there. 
and it's stigmatizing. And so what does Vincent do while he's in this asylum? He paints himself. He paints a self-portrait. Now remember, when you're painting, you can do whatever you want, right? You can show whatever you want. It's not a photograph, it's a painting. And so during the most shameful period of his life, Vincent stretched a canvas to paint the truth. No more carriage rides, no more prison yards, just a broken man whose self-mutilation had finally gotten to a point where he needed help. And in that state, he painted himself as he was. Now, he could have painted the ear whole. He could have rendered his other profile instead and just kind of made, minimized it, but he didn't. He told the truth, bandage and all. Consider this. When he painted self-portrait with bandaged ear, it was worth nothing more than the canvas that it was painted on. He had not sold any paintings yet as an artist. He sold one while he was alive. One to the sister of a friend. Yeah. But here's the thing. What about now? Well, this is worth more than any of us could afford. Why? It's because the world has come to understand that Vincent wasn't a fringe lunatic. That he was a beautiful artist whose life and work told the deeply human story of the tension between what he painted in the carriage and what he painted in the prison yard, the tension that we all live in between loneliness and love. And he did it in a way that was piercing. May we all be this truthful. I keep this in my office to remind me what kind of pastor I believe God has called me to be. And it's one who doesn't have all the answers, but ought to be, and I'm not perfect at this, ought to be willing to show you my own woundedness as a way of showing you the preciousness of the gospel. You and I start off so much worse than being like Rahab, harlots in a heathen land. Colossians 1.21 tells us that apart from Christ, we're enemies of God. We're enemies not just at odds with him, not just disagreeing on some of the finer points of theology with the one who made the heavens and the earth, but we are enemies with God. But in Christ, it goes on to say, we become so much more than princes and princesses in Judah. We become sons and daughters of God, made holy in his sight through the finished work of Christ, which we remember when we come to these communion tables in just a moment. See, Rahab went from being a harlot to a princess, but in Christ, we go from being God's enemies to God's children, from being separated from him to eternally bound to him. We are the wounded faces on the canvas that no one can afford because it has become too precious to put a price on. In his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, Henry Nouwen, by the way, that book is about that painting over there, The Return of the Prodigal Son, Henry Nouwen wrote this about our brokenness. So if you're somebody who likes to put your brokenness on display, 
as a way of saying, this is, this, is how, this is how you can love me, is to understand my brokenness. Be challenged by this. He said, our brokenness has no other beauty but the beauty that comes from the compassion that surrounds it. The prodigal son's beauty is not in how ragged and beat down and miserable he is. It's that in that condition of being ragged and beat down and miserable, he is enveloped in the embrace of his father. That's where the beauty is seen in our brokenness. You've got ugliness in your life. I've got ugliness in my life. It's okay to present the truth of our brokenness because there is a compassion surrounding it that makes it beautiful. Rahab was beautiful as Salmon. Beautiful. And you're even more beautiful to God. Even at your ugliest, you're more beautiful to God. You're like, you're like that. He sees you as you really are, and you are of incalculable worth to him. What are you showing to the world? Bring to the Lord the lies that you tell about yourself. Bring to the Lord also the truths about yourself that you withhold. And ask him to set you free, first to believe the truth of the gospel, and then to tell it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the story of Rahab, it's got to be the case that people in Jericho before Israel came in would have just assumed that her life was going one way and that she would end up used up or dead too soon and that nobody would remember her this great-great-grandmother of King David because of your work in transferring her citizenship from a kingdom that was destined for ruin to a kingdom that was destined to be established forever. Lord, these are big thoughts for us. Thank you for the time that you give us in your word to unpack these things for the beauty of the stories that you tell, uh, for the way that we have the benefit of hindsight to see lives like Vincent Van Gogh's um, when everyone around him thought he was crazy uh, and thought he was, uh, that he was amounting to nothing, that, that we see the transformation in the way uh, that you worked through his art to speak to generations of people around the world. Um, would you help us understand that that's just a small picture of how precious we are to you? And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.